Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. Um, I mentioned to David that Matt, Kevin, and I are going out to Larry's the weekend of the 15th of September. And if you wanted to join us, I'm sure he'd love to have you. It's a huge. I think I think you would enjoy it just to see the house. Oh yeah, he, he, I know that. It's this huge ranch, but it's not overwhelming at all. Uh-huh. And it's just every everything that he designed and put in there. It's just really another work of art. You know, it is, and then the grounds are incredible. Uh-huh. So this the schedule is that we're going to leave here early, get there by noon, probably have a little lunch, and then. At least those three guys are going to go to this golf course called Maidstone and play golf. And I might go with them, I might not. If you or David or both of you go, then I'll stay. I won't go. And then Saturday, Larry and I are going to an early AA meeting. Then I'm going to run a 12-step workshop that you're welcome to sit in on if you want but, uh, or not. And then I'm going to give a you know, little uh, meditation and Dhamma talk in, in the evening. Come home Sunday. Have a gig on Saturday. What's that? Have a gig on Saturday morning. Oh, what's more important? No, no. Can ask for Saturday night. If you're leaving Saturday. We're leaving here, this area. Like uh, my thinking was that those guys would probably pick me up at around seven o'clock, maybe just a little bit earlier if we think we want to stop on our way for a little break and breakfast, maybe. 
just so we get out there by somewhere between 11 and 12. It's about a four hour ride. <clears throat> yeah. So that they have enough time to play golf. And... Yeah, but it's an easy, I mean, I, you know, I sat in the back seat the whole time. It was an easy, mm -hmm. an easy ride. So, uh, yeah, and then we'll come home, probably get home Sunday late afternoon, early evening. You know, one of the group out there is this guy, Colin, really interesting, a true renaissance man. Anyway, he's got this little restaurant. It's just, I still think of the food. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. Mentioned it to Kevin, his head started bobbing around. <clears throat> well, if you decide, let me know. And I'll yeah. tell Harry, tell Larry to tell the maid to make up another bit. so I could get around his grounds, but that was the only thing I used it for. Mm -hmm. I've seen him, so I, you know, I don't need to bring that again. Uh, yeah, but... If you, I were you, I would, I'll tell Larry to give you the room in the garage, but it, it's really the, a, a well-put-together second-floor suite. Kevin scoffed it up the land. I can't because it's too hard to get up the stairs. Right. I think Jody will still be there. Meet his wife. We can argue all the way out there. Ooh. That's your seal of the deal. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> window rolled up so nobody throws me out. Yeah. Then I'll slide you out of the back. <laughs> We're going out for breakfast too after. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to join us. Yeah, I, do, I have to run across the River, uh, pick up my veggies, but uh, after that, oh. I'll be able to. I was thinking of going to Casey's. Casey's. You know, that restaurant on the other side? Oh, just down. Yeah. A new a woman took it over about a year ago. It's really good. I ate there twice. I think it's there twice. It was really okay. good. And it's, you know, usually that the, you know, middle of the. It's pretty busy, but I think we'll either get a nice table outside and mm -hmm. it's not raining. Yeah. Yeah, the place has a checkered past, but uh, yeah, actually, I've been there. It's just it's been run by different people, by, by just odd people. Um, and he just had has ate there more often than I have. But um, there was this old Dutch guy that, that ran it for decades, and it just got steadily worse. <laughs> 
to the point where you know, people would show up and order something off the menu and he, he'd literally say, no, you don't want that, but we have some burgers. <laughs> this is what I'm making. You know, That's and there'd be a German shepherd laying down in the kitchen, you know, and well, maybe that's okay with Pennsylvania health codes. Oh, service dog. Yeah, it's a service dog. No, I, I've eaten there at least a half dozen times, and I've never gotten what I would say was a poor meal or pork service. <clears throat> but that's just an idea. Yeah, but did you have you been there when when the the old Dutch guy still run it? Oh, years and years ago. I, yeah. Yeah. Actually. When it was the, uh, I took my parents there for Thanksgiving once. I just uh, I thought it would be a cool idea to yeah. just you know the Thanksgiving drive out here and right. all that yeah. stuff. I think it was a pretty good meal. Yeah, they had a nice bar. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, that's the place. The first time Anita and I went out for dinner when the kids were young. I mean, young. That was that we went there. I remember that because we didn't want to go too far, mm. uh, and I forget who who was babysitting. Oh, you didn't bring the kids, huh? Yeah. No, we just wanted to go out once with with just Jenna. It wasn't too hard to go out for dinner because she was like she was easy at the at the dinner table. Uh, Ari was just impossible. Was he just? Possible. There was always something going on. There he was, was full of this around, and you know, it was just completely impossible. We, we had to buy like hours. When he was, like when he was an infant, uh, and he and I would have to eat in shifts because <laughs> <laughs> you know somebody had to hold the kid. Good for Ari, make you pay for adopting them. Mm, yeah. He said, I was, you know, I only met him a couple of times, but I'm glad to get to know him. I just think he's a really great human being. Oh, he and is. He is. He just sits completely get confused. It, get it straightened out. And, yeah. Well, he will, though. Hmm? He certainly has, doesn't seem like he's given up at all on rights. Well, he's having a hard time right now, yeah. <clears throat> is he? Yeah. Just trying to get a, a little um, job seems to me like completely impossible. Uh, he said he's, he's applied to over 50 jobs just to have something because he has actually, he, he, uh, he got uh, confirmed that he's. Morning, John. Good morning, Tracy. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Is, is there something in his work history that's coming up? I don't know. Because maybe you should check that and maybe it's not, you know, maybe some boss said something that's not true and it's on his record somewhere. Um, yeah. Um, I keep saying, all right, you know, just get a, go flip burger somewhere. You know, don't, yeah, don't see something. Do nothing. He says, I have. Well, but it is always easier to get a job when you have a job. It's, it's, yeah. It looks better. You know? That's true. But, you know, we're getting fairly close to full employment again. You know, there should be. Plenty open. Yeah. Did he ever go to a, a vocational school? It doesn't have any licenses. Or no. Um, 
but he just uh, he did get the job as a uh, beginning corrections officer at Lehigh uh, Lehigh County Jail, and that seems to be like a, a decent opening because he wants to get into law enforcement. Oh, he, and he's doing that now. And uh, now he's he uh, it, the job starts in October. I think. Great, good for him. So he has that, but Officer Harry. How's your practice, Tracy? It's going well. Good. Good. You're getting to two sets a day? Um, this week was a little hard to get the second sit in, but I did do it. Um, so have to commit to two sits a day for the week ahead. <laughs> Yeah, do the best you can, but always be gentle with yourself. You know, the, the, the reason why we suggest two sits a day is it's just a nice balance in a 24-hour day. It, you know, it's always good to return to that refuge. Yeah. Cody, I remember your name. Good to see you. Me too. Hi, Gary. Hey, good morning. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you. Ah, look who this is. My friend Jeff. No. Hello, Mr. Kemp. Hello, John. Ah, there you are. And uh, what do they call that? In... Yeah. Ah, there it is. Yeah. Who is it? Film noir. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Good. You're not working too much? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, definitely working too much. Tell them your Dhamma teacher said you couldn't do that anymore. Yeah, it's a time of year. Yeah. You know, people people plan all year long and then all of a sudden they wake up and summer is almost over and they panic. Yeah, when I was in the roofing business, um, January was always my best money month. It wasn't? because Yeah, well, it was because people got past the holidays and then they realized they got a problem because it's going to snow soon. Yeah. And not that I overcharge people, but I, you know, I put out, you know, every bid that I would get in January, I'd you know, go get a yeah, job. Right. And Premium time. Yeah. How's Deborah? Deborah's okay. Is she still traveling? What's that? Is she still traveling out in Washington? No, no, she's back. She started school. They started last week. And she's wow. adjusting. That's all right. We didn't start school ever until after Labor Day. That was kind of, I don't think they could get us into school before Labor Day. They tried. Yeah. <clears throat> they couldn't get me into school. <laughs> or after Labor Day. Yeah. Anytime of year. <laughs> I had this great reputation with the vice principal of our high school, mostly because I was always getting called into his office. Yeah. But he was just a regular guy that I could talk to, and he understood that I was just a little nuts. And uh, he called me into his office one day. It was almost it was in my senior year, but I was technically just still a junior. And he was literally in tears. He said, John, I have to ask you to leave. 
said, I called Peter. He said, said, Pete, then what's a big deal? He said, I'm not, I said, I'm not learning anything here. Mm -hmm. I'm causing a lot of trouble. So, you know, he said, always remember, you can get, you can come back. We remain friends, so we go out to coffee, or go out for coffee. Did you actually graduate? I ended up getting a GED just to have it because I, I wanted to. Uh, I took some uh, college level courses in, for home inspection. Uh -huh. Not home inspection, for uh, building inspectors. Mm. And you need to have that. Yeah. I'm glad I did it. I, I, I almost decided to. This was when I was still doing pretty good. I almost decided to give up the business and do that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. Then everybody hates you. Yeah, I, well, I just, you know, I, my dad was a really good building inspector. He would go on the job and, you know, help people out, actually. Doing this wrong, he wouldn't just say, okay, you can't do it. He would say, do it this way. Mm -hmm. So everybody liked him. And yeah. I would be that kind if I went in. I've met good ones and bad ones. Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't know any when I first started out. You want where I was working? If you wanted to work, it was a hundred bucks apartment. It was just everybody knew it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way it was. Hello, Adam. I think you've met Cody. Cody yes, yeah. Saw so Cody here a couple times. How's it going? Good man. How are you? Good. To see you. Didn't hear the big six roaring in. Mm -hmm. I said I didn't hear the big six. No, roaring. not today. I just wasn't wasn't quite up for the thrill of the road this morning. I took the ball though. <laughs> what is the big What's that? Uh, the uh, have, my father-in-law has a little couple of triumphs that oh, are really fun to drive. Yeah, I used to have one. <clears throat> I had a Spitfire in a TR6. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, and an MGB and a midget. I loved yeah. every one of them. My favorite was a midget, but I was scared to everything I got in that thing. I was just, I mean, yeah, you're scared. really close to the road. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me and a couple of my friends could really lift that car up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The TR6 went like a Cadillac. Yeah, he has a, he has a TR6 and a GT6. Still. Hmm. Still has them. Yeah, yeah, they're running and they're they're great cars. Uh, my uncle has a Spitfire that I might buy from him. He can't he can't drive it much anymore because it hurts his back. But last weekend I discovered that the GT6 hurts my back. So does it? Yeah. Tough getting old, Cody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, those seats were never all that great. No. Yeah, and he has he has this mirror in there that really blocks the view, so you have to lean way back, and it's it's just awkward. But the Spitfire might be a little more comfortable. I want to ride it. Yeah, uh, anytime. What if I can get in it? I'll bring it next week. It's easy to get in. It's harder to get out. Your gravity working for you getting in, right? Yeah. I said a heart set on MGB GT. Yeah. Great little car. One day. Yeah. Candy apple red. They're getting yeah. more and more expensive. Yeah. I mean, everything is. Yeah. All the old cars. You can still get cheap Jaguars, but they're. Yeah. 
they're, they're really for enthusiasts. They're really crappy cars. You know, yeah. Especially the older. What do they call the old ones? Six cylinders. Well, they all E types are nice. Yeah, there's right. plenty. Yeah, still, there's 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 plenty of E types around too. They're pretty common. Oh, you can go down. Go down to the V12. Yeah. Don't pick those up. Either V12 or the coupe V12. Oh, I love the looking car. Mm -hmm. Men never grow up, do we? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> David, what do you have to say? David's sitting there quietly thinking. <clears throat> Not a gearhead. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a Harley collection. <laughs> the guy up on the 12's got a nice collection. Is that the, the English bikes? Yeah, he's yeah. got Harley's there. He's got some old Bonnie's. I've seen Indians there. Cody, how's your practice? I uh, I've just been really, really scattered and distracted this week. It's been a struggle. Have you been able to meditate twice a day? Uh, no, those, my schedule has been nuts. So, um, there were a few days where I got twice a day. Most days just once. Yeah. And always, you know, do the best you can and always be gentle with yourself. But we just suggest that because that is the optimum Dhamma practice, but Dhamma practice has to fit into your life, the lives of us practitioners. And it takes a little bit of a priority to fully develop it. The week before uh, the week before school starts, my son's first year kindergarten. Oh, wow. uh, so we had like three orientation classes, and everybody wants play dates with. Yeah. Uh, he, yeah, I think he is excited. I think he's more excited than nervous, but uh, <coughs> his his mother's nervous. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, even at even at kindergarten, I got embarrassed by my mother crying. Broke me. <laughs> hey, <I'll be> fine. <laughs> Good morning, Julia. Good morning. How are you? I'm very yeah. well. How's everyone? Good. Good. Did you lose somebody? I sent him home to change his outfit. Really? <laughs> really? I want to call him up and tell him to keep it on. I want to <laughs> see it. I just felt that a little bit more decorum was merited than pajama pants. <laughs> oh, okay. I want it. What was it? You got to just. Describing. Just pajama, just some flannels. I, I think you guys deserve better. <laughs> yeah, I would say, yeah, thank you. <laughs> now I know what I'm wearing next week. <laughs> you know what you're not wearing. Uh, he'll be in a minute. I proposed to her that you know, to all of us teachers that we should wear jacket and ties, including Mary and Jen. <clears throat> they didn't go for it. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you think he'll be here within a couple minutes? Yes, absolutely. Let's wait for. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's it. I know he wouldn't want to hold everybody up. Well, good. I can needle him a little bit. And that's it. <laughs> waiting for you.
Well, when we start, can you close the door then? Unless they, they stop talking. Mm -hmm. Wow, well, you put a suit on. <laughs> Is that Zach? Yes, sir. Wow, you look really good, good today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's nice to see you in some really <sighs> appropriate clothes for Domiclet. Yeah, I, feel like you, I feel like you've been primed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, Zach is here so we can get started. So this is class 13, I think. 14 of our jhana study. Today's sutta is the Rathogata Sutta, sutta uh, subtitled Ending Fabrications One After Another. And I'll give a, a, a more detailed introduction when we start, but you'll see how this relates directly to uh, the two classes we had on dependent origination previously. So we will be meditating for 30 minutes. If you find this overly uncomfortable, Come out of meditation and sit quietly until you are ready to resume. Now is the time to meditate. Now is the time to set mindfulness on the breath in the body and do jhana. We are sensitive and conscious beings. The purpose of jhana meditation is to increase concentration by not being distracted by the arising and passing away of feelings and thoughts. Find your relaxed meditation posture. Sitting erect, gently close your eyes and gently close your mouth. And holding yourself softly, gently, lovingly. Allow yourselves to settle into your rooms, settle onto your seats, Settle into your body and settle into your mind. Notice the sensation of breathing in your body. Become mindful of your inhalation and your exhalation, your in-breath and your out-breath. When you find that you're distracted by feelings or thoughts, Gently acknowledge the distraction and return mindfulness to the arising and passing away of your breath and your body. And we'll continue to meditate for 30 minutes with callbacks every 10 minutes.
Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath in your body.
Notice the arising and the passing away of feelings and thoughts while remaining mindful of the arising and the passing away of your breath and your body. And we'll continue to meditate for 10 more minutes.
unknown caller. Take a moment to notice the quality of your mind. 
be at peace with your mind, if you are mind. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. So I just wanted to let everybody know that the three teachers that are present are going out for breakfast and you're all invited to join us if you'd like, um, including you, Jeff. You better hurry though. Um, today's sutta, as I stated earlier, is on the Rahogata Sutta, uh, ending fabrications. And you'll see how it directly relates to um, undoing the causes or the cause, ignorance of Four Noble Truths of, in the, Buddha, the Buddhist words, all manner of stress and suffering, uh, dukkha, get into the, into the sutta. So dependent origination states um, from ignorance, very specific ignorance of Four Noble Truths as a, as a requisite condition, it's required for fabrications to occur. And then from fabrications comes consciousness, consciousness, contact, etc., all the way to the conclusion of the Buddha's description of what occurs when ignorance of four noble truths is present in a human being mind, human being's mind, all manner of stress and suffering. Um, so it it just um, it's just logical. I guess I don't like to use logic in relation to, but that's what's coming up today. It's just utterly logical that if ignorance of Four Noble Truths leads to fabrications and those fabrications are the cause of all my stress and suffering, then I want to look at fabrications and end them. I want to understand them. And fabrications are easy to understand. Um, and um, Fabrications are easy to understand, but it's difficult to see the very subtle nature um, of fabrications and the grasp that those subtle fabrications um, have on keeping us uh, stuck in fabrications, deluded. Um, okay, let me get to the. This is the, the Buddha addresses those very subtle fabrications here. On one occasion, a certain monk went to the Buddha with a question. Upon arrival, he bowed and sat to one side. Great teacher, just now in seclusion, meaning he was doing jhana, the thought occurred to me, you speak of three types of feelings. There is a feeling of pleasure, a feeling of pain, and a feeling that is neither pleasure nor pain. Um, an, an ambiguous feeling, usually characterized by human beings as boredom. And it's that, that last three that um, causes most people to leave meditation, they, they simply can't stand the boredom. They can't stand that quality of mind. Then you said that whatever feeling arises, whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. So immediately in our minds, there's going to be some uh, objection to that. Uh, it's because we think that life is all about feeling, especially it feeling good. But it really, that makes life about feeling only one thing or being willing to feel only one thing. And that, that would be whatever feeling I need to maintain this fabricated self. And anything that would 
uh, cause me to question this fabricated self, I have a natural aversion to it. Why? Because of the other side of that same coin, because I'm greedily clinging to this fabricated self. So there is an inherent difficulty in breaking through that veil of ignorance. That's what the Buddha was considering just how to do that in the two weeks post his awakening, meaning he was he considered off and on for those two weeks, whether he wanted to get up off his cushion or if it was a bed of grasses um, and go out and teach because his initial thought is this is so difficult to teach those, uh, teach human beings. And it would, he, the Buddha was referring to himself. He says it would be a vexation to me. It would be difficult. Why would I want to do that? But he continued to think about it and he came to the realization that like himself, <coughs> excuse me, like himself, there were probably human beings that had, you know, you hear the phrase all the time, just a speck of dust in their eyes, which means they have perhaps a natural understanding of what it means to be a mature human being. Um, or they can easily develop it. They can see the Dhamma. They understand what we're talking about. And we've seen that phenomena in here at every class. People come and go. And you know, I like to see people when they come here stay forever. But I always say that if everybody that came here and expressed an interest and maybe came to a couple of the classes instead of stopping, kept coming, we'd be teaching right now in Madison Square Garden. So it really is for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes and those that are willing to actually take up a practice instead of what might be seen as a religious practice that you go to church on Sunday and you're good to go or to, um, I used to be a part of, I was part of a lot of groups, and I won't mention this one specifically, but, uh, and the teacher had to be, happened to be a really good teacher of what they were teaching, which wasn't really what the Buddha taught, but most of it was just a social gathering, and so people came week after week to listen to this talk, but then we'd spend too much time after just sipping tea and, and uh, whatever water they had there, you should have some kind of fruit or something. Um, and thinking that, yeah, we're all, we're in this community, this real new agey community. We're all, you know, kind of exalted thinkers. But of course, there was no practice there. And they're, they're still going, and that's fine. They're having, those people are having a wonderful time. Um, I think they actually meet on Tuesday nights like we do. It just wasn't for me. And it wasn't until I left all of that and understood what the Buddha taught that anything in my mind changed. And then, Everything in my mind, my mind changed. Then you said that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. In what connection did you say this? Excellent question, my friend. Excellent question. I have spoken of these feelings of pleasure, pain, and either pleasure or pain. I have also stated that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. When stated, stated this in connect, I stated this in connection to fabrications. Fabrications are impermanent. It is the nature of fabrications to arise and pass away, to change. It is in, in connection to fabrications that I stated that whatever feeling arises, they are all stressful. Furthermore, I have also taught the step-by-step -step process of the cessation of fabrication. So the Buddha never ever leaves us in a troublesome spot. He points out the trouble and then he tells us how to get out of it. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the first jhana, speech falls away. 
And it's not just, of course, when we're meditating, we're not usually talking, but we're also referring to that internal dialogue, that speech, and that falls away. When a Dharma practitioner has attained the second jhana, directed thought and evaluation falls away. Does anybody have any question on that directed thought and evaluation? What that is, everybody knows. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the third jhana, rapture or joyful engagement falls away. Now that doesn't mean that at this point your meditation should become miserable. It simply means you're past that point of even being joyfully engaged in it. Your mind has deepened its concentration to the point that rapture is no longer relevant to what we're doing here. You've gotten to the fourth jhana. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fourth jhana, in and out breathing has passed away. So of course we don't stop breathing when we get to the fourth jhana. We simply have no, no need to direct our thought back to our breath because we're not being distracted by thoughts arising and passing away. Now, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it was more that I wanted to say on that, but I got myself sidetracked. Side <clears throat> right, let me just continue. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension, the fabricated is in parentheses, in my words, not part of the sutra. The fabricated dimension of infinite space, the perception of form passes away. So an uninstructed Dhamma practitioner would say, whoa, what about this? Are we supposed to um, develop this notion or find ourselves in the dimension of infinite space? No, this is something a common distraction during the Buddhist time and so-called spiritual teachings. Most spiritual teachers during the Buddhist time, including the ones that the Buddha mentions, Alara Kalama and Dekarama Buddha, as being significant teachers of him, um, everything that was taught in northern India that had a spiritual bent to it at the time was, uh, uh, was founded in the... Um, I can't think of the books. Upanishads. The Upanishads and the Vedas. The Vedas. Thank you. Jeez. Uh, founded in the Vedas and the Upanishads, which were the precursors to modern uh, Hinduism, or Hinduism at that time, too, such as it was. And even today, um, many people in certain communities that are have more of a Hindu influence insists that the Buddha was a yogi and of course he, he, he rejected when he awakened he rejected all of those type of um, Hindu based teachings uh, okay and, and that's all I need to say about that when a dollar practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite space the perception of form passes away when a Dhamma practitioner has attained a fabricated dimension of infinite consciousness, the perception of the dimension of infinite space passes away. So the Buddha is kind of giving a backhand slap at, at practitioners that would think that there's something beneficial in chasing after the dimension of infinite space. 
And that's what he's saying right here. So just because we might think that my practice of chasing after the dimension of infinite consciousness is better than those that chase after the dimension of infinite space or is somehow part of both part of the practice. Here, the Buddha is saying, no, that's just as fabricated and as distracting as any other imaginary realms that we could aspire to. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of nothingness, the perception of the dimension of infinite consciousness passes away. So again, the, just as common, probably the, the most prevalent form of um, Buddhist thought and where it resolves is in this notion of nothingness or emptiness. Almost every school at some point ends up there, whether it's a Zen school or the car, the, the, uh, the, the, the Tibetan, the Tibetan, and um, and the, the Theravada-based um, teachings today. They all resolve in some because they have no real resolution. But they have no real resolution because they don't teach a path. You know, a path implies that you, you walk along that path, and at some point you get to the end of the path, right? But if there is no path, there's nothing to develop. And so as an intellectual pursuit, when you start thinking this out, okay, where does, where does this particular spiritual notion end? How can I bring an ending to um, whatever that religion might be? And if it has no real ending, then it's either the dimension of nothingness or emptiness or some fabricated heavenly realm. That is, and it's often given a description of what you can expect there. Mine, and one of the most scariest things I ever heard as a child in Catholic school was when you die, and as long as you're a good boy, a good boy and girl, you'll be sitting at the right hand of God for all eternity. And I'm a little kid, I'm thinking, yikes, and there's no fishing, there's no, there's no chasing. What kind of, what is that? What kind of, who would want that? So even that notion of, that's, an, that's an, a notion of annihilation, I think, if anybody thinks through that. But the Buddha thought through all that and experienced all that. And upon his awakening, he realized that it would be cruel to, if he was going to teach, that it would be cruel to teach as he was taught, that nothing really, nothing to really practice. So that's how he came up with an eightfold path for human beings that needed a particular path to awakening that we were interested in. So again, all these other dimensions were common things that people grasped after during the Buddhist time, and they still do today. But also, our imagination can be seen as any of these fabricated realms, because if our imagination is rooted in the mind, rooted in ignorance itself, rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, then that mind is only going to create another corrupted experience, because it doesn't understand the world it lives in. So even imagining... I always talked about when I was a kid, I imagined myself playing center field for the Yankees. And at that, you know, that young age, you know, I think I was like 42 at the time. I was, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, I thought that that was a reasonable goal to play center field for the Yankees. And that's what I held in mind. That was, that was me. Um, but I had to distract myself away from the fact that I was rather slow foot and a little bit too small to ever play center field for the Yankees. Um, and over over the time, over time, I've created and we've all created almost an endless list of 
self-fabricated images of who I am out into the world. You know, and again, some of these are, are necessary for uh, that playing this game with ourselves, fabricating who we are is necessary for a mind that's rooted in ignorance or that mind would literally be in, in nothingness. There would be nothing to inspire that. But we find that that's a distraction, which is dukkha. Always trying to establish the self, trying to figure out what I am. You know, that's what nothingness and, and emptiness is an attempt to, to resolve the problem of dukkha within a self without actually understanding the cause and the cessation of dukkha. So do this, you know, pray and prostrate yourself and, and chant, um, visualize Avalokiteshvara or whatever else you might want to do to get out of this life and establish yourself in some other plane of existence when the only human, the only human plane of existence that we can live in is this human plane. Right? And so the Buddha begins his teaching or teaching us is the first noble truth is there is dukkha. As a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be dukkha. And that dukkha arises because we want this human life, me, to be different in some imaginary and supernatural, meaning superhuman way, not that it, a, a, an experience that a human being cannot experience. And yet almost every human being that's ever been born distracts themselves to that instead of understanding what it means to be a human being. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, that's also a, a, a reference to um, uh, that ambiguous boredom state too. The dimension of neither perception nor non-perception the perception of the dimension of nothingness passes away. So if it was valuable, the Buddha wouldn't keep keep reminding us to let these things go. Let all these fabricated things go. Let this, this these imaginary notions of yourself arise and pass away because that's all they are. When a Dharma practitioner has recognized and abandoned these, excuse me, these qualities, they have attained the cessation of perception and of perception and feelings. When these unskillful mental qualities have ended, greed, aversion, and delusion have ended. Now we're living in, a, in that ongoing, continuous fourth level of jhana, or fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is just calm. Again, the Buddha taught something completely contradictory to everything that was taught in his day as what we were chasing after. And what we're using a path to develop is not chasing after anything, is it? We, are, we know where we're going. And we have a step-by-step, -step, we, we instill in us that step-by-step -step process of recognizing, wait a minute, there's I making, take a breath, let it go. There's I making, take a breath, let it go. And almost as soon as we start practicing and doing it correctly, we all talk about it here, you experience that. You know, that's why it's important to understand Keeping concentration or the genre. You know that it's working. You couldn't possibly keep coming and listening to that crazy old man week after week, sometimes twice a week, talk unless you found some value in it. You, and of course, you just wouldn't come. But because you're 
you're, you're integrating it into your practice and you're feeling the benefits of it. Your practice becomes self-encouraging and you understand what the Buddha's teaching here, what I'm teaching here. Does anybody not understand why I'm teaching this and how it connects to our jhana review and then specifically to the last two classes on dependent origination? Nobody, if you, if you are a little confused, let me know because I'd be happy to explain. Well, yes, Julie. I don't think I'm outright confused, but it's helpful for me to like try and connect the dots. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> We're doing a class on ending fabrications following classes on dependent origination because dependent origination is all about like dukkha coming from ignorance and fabrications and the I'm looking at the chart right but like all of these there's no way to avoid dukkha that's the short version for me and yes thinking and just experiencing the world and planning for the future or thinking about the past these are all fabrications so of course they're all part of our human experience and by yes. choosing to end fabrications in the present moment we are therefore like I, I'm just, that's how I'm connecting the dots is to letting go of dukkha. Yeah, with the understanding that dukkha as a consequence of your ongoing life, yeah. there will be dukkha. Right. So you, you, you connected all the dots. And so, and again, this, this also relates to a lot of other practices that might, I talked to David a little bit. My mother was in, when I got home from school a little bit after three every day, Carlton Fredericks and the power of positive thinking would be on the radio. My mother just, you know, my mother was a devotee. Um, and even then I used to talk to her about mom, life isn't always positive. You, 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 it's not, and I was telling my mother, you know, a kid at 15 years old, it might not be really healthier. But so that, but that, that thinking has persisted, hasn't it? In fact, most people say, oh, you should put a positive space on well, no, we shouldn't. We should put the face, we should put our face on everything if we keep it authentic. Mm -hmm. You know, there is dukkha. Why would I run away from it? And why don't, and, and if I stop running away from the obvious stressors by taking those things personally, thinking I can get away from them, I can get to the more subtle aspect of eye making, but I first have to start there. Mm -hmm. So you connected all the dots, dots beautifully. And as you continue to develop your understanding, Julia, You'll, you can't help but avoid these much more subtle levels mm -hmm. um, just because that's, you know, you could say that they're, they're all, it's kind of a, a gross way of looking at it, but it's kind of like push pins that we're stuck, if we're stuck in. If we were, if we were a, a pin cushion, mm -hmm. they'd be all like little pins that got stuck in us. Why? Because we're living a human life. That's all. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with us that um, Dukkha, keeps being a part of our lives, right? But it's foolish to think that we can do something or believe in something that would end dukkha because that contradicts the first noble truth. So it isn't about ending dukkha, it's about understanding dukkha. That's what mm -hmm. the Eightfold Path is about. And in so doing, you know, I think we've all heard the Salata Sutta, if not, go on the website, and, uh, but we're gonna get to it soon. We, we stop sticking in that second hour. We stop causing the additional stress in our lives by our greed and aversion about the common stressors 
of human life. So again, we're dealing with our humanity. We're not dealing with about something fabricated outside of that or to add a fabrication on top of the fabrication. We're learning how to live a human life right here and right now. And John, that, yes. that's, that's enough for a practice. That's, yeah, that's more than enough. You, know, if you can simply accomplish that in your practice and not look for more, then it's well worth the time that is needed and invested into it. Yes, thank you for saying that. And that, that's why we refer to the Eightfold Path as a limiting path, right? It limits the greed and the grasping after that would have your, your sight that would leave you thinking that you can or should be a different person or you need to do something because there's something lacking or broken within you. All of that is, is all of that is a fabrication and so dukkha and that we come to understand this, right? We come to and understand the utter common normality of stress arising and passing away of each and every moment of my human life, right? So as I developed the Dhamma, as I moved towards awakening, gaining full human maturity, I recognize that's a foolish thought, it's a foolish idea, isn't it? That there should be no stress in my life or that I can um, get the big, uh, big enough pile of gold or whatever it might be, you know, some people it's sex or shot, whatever it might be, but I'll get, if I just can get that big, huge pile of gold, stress won't bother me. I'll have no more stress. I'll end stress. A lot of people are spending millions and billions of dollars on somehow to escape stress. I used to have, I mean, I had hundreds and hundreds of books, but every one of them was self-help books. And it's still a huge industry, isn't it? Because people think that this broken self needs help. I need to fix this. I need to be more. I need to aspire to other dimensions. I, I need to live in my imagination. Why is it so hard? And it's also talking about limiting the scope of what you think this practice is for. Yes, thank you for bringing it up. It, 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 this practice John. itself, framed by John. the eightfold. By the Eightfold Path, limits us to just this practice, and we talk a lot about this. Keep to this practice because the only way to develop it is to stay within the framework. That's why the Buddha gave it to us. Yes, Mary. We cannot hear anyone else in the room. Just letting you know, we can't hear whatever David's saying. Okay, so let's everybody please talk up. Thank you. <laughs> um, thanks, Mary. Zach, did you have a question? No. Did you almost have a question? I just I didn't get you. It's okay. Okay. The Buddha continues. Furthermore, I have also taught the step-by-step -step process of the stilling of fabrication. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the first jhana, speech has been stilled. Right? Include meaning the internal dialogue most importantly. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the second jhana, the record thought and evaluation has been stilled. So has anybody not experienced the first or second jhana? Please say so if you haven't. 
chromosome won't hit you. Um, so you're finding out that this is just an ordinary quality of mind. You're not doing anything spectacular. I mean, the Johnny meditation is just recognizing when you're caught up in a thought or a feeling, come back to your breath. Again, what could be easier or more plain, except many people struggle to do that. But when we do it, almost immediately we realize, of course, my, in, my internal dialogue, I'm not talking during meditation, hopefully I'm not. And my internal dialogue, I notice isn't there anymore. Of course, three breaths down the road, it might come back. But those, those gradations are important to, to recognize as progress. And let, just let me know if you haven't attained, even if it's just briefly, the third or fourth jhana. When a Dharma practitioner has attained the third jhana, rapture or joyful engagement has been stilled. Again, it doesn't mean that our Dhamma practice or our meditation practice is now becoming miserable. We just are no longer, um, we are concentrated past the point of even recognizing a feeling of joyful engagement. It has stilled. When a Dhamma practitioner has attained the fourth jhana, in and out breathing has stilled. Again, of course, it doesn't mean that we stop breathing. It just means that for uh, the initial fourth jhana to be experienced is recognizing that, yeah, for two breaths, I didn't have to think. I just breathe. And that gets deeper and deeper and deeper as well. When a Dharma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite space, the perception of form has been stilled. Well, I'm no longer trying to establish this, this self. I no longer have to play center field for the Yankees. Or else, when a Dharma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite space, that, I said that twice. When a Dharma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of infinite consciousness, the perception of the dimension of infinite consciousness has been stilled. No longer chasing after nothingness and all these other fabrications. Uh, when a Dharma practitioner has attained the fabricated dimension of nothingness or emptiness, the perception of the dimension of infinite consciousness has been still. We're just working through, the Buddha's going through a series here, of working through um, ignorant qualities of mind that were common during the Buddhist time and relate to our time. Now, again, remember that most of modern Buddhism resolves in nothingness or emptiness or in some type of, of um, uh, perennial heaven-like experience. When a Dharma practitioner has attained the cessation, the cessation of perception and feelings, perception and feelings have been stilled. They're calm. I no longer have to having to evaluate every little thing that comes into my uh, sphere of awareness. I'm just a reference point to what's occurring. Is there, does everybody understand that when I say that? Or is there still some um, maybe resistance to that idea? of just being a reference point. Does it sound like it's, it's a stagnant state, that it's, um, it's that ambiguous state? Everybody knows that it's not, right? Things are just happening. And yeah, what's, what's you know, our part in it then? What? What, when I'm a reference point to what's occurring and I have a part in it, how does that relate? How do, how do, how do, you, how do you? You're basically a witness to it. You're yeah, not, you're not reacting to it. You're not um, identifying with it, yeah. identifying with it. But and that that 
liberated. But your, but your presence will come. Yes, and that liberation from our own self-imposed walls, our own self-imposed limits, are stressful, isn't it? I think the best description is that you're sensitive to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, again, it, it does, yes, sensitive just means that you're using the Dhamma as it's developed to be sensitive to what's arising, what's occurring in my life and in my world. And in so doing, whether it, if it's outside of the Dhamma, I might be at work and somebody drops a project on my desk. I might, without dollar practice, get really pissed off because it's worth the hurry and I gotta, whatever the reason might be. Or somebody could come along and drop a project on my on my desk. Hopefully, I'll smile and say thank you and get into it because that's what I'm here to do, right? Or not. I don't have to. Well, yeah, you could make or, the decision at that point that, okay, I want to do something different um, and not get a paycheck at the end of the week. You know, but I mean, but that's, but we would make those decisions without passion. Okay, I don't like this job anymore. Let me move down the road. But we also learn that we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Meaning just because I'm a wonderful Dharma practitioner doesn't mean that I don't have to do things. I live in a world that requires a, a certain amount of money to live in. It's, it's just a world we live in, right? It's not right. It's not wrong. I can't change it. So I have to, unless something else happens, I have to work. But can I do that? Can I can I spend maybe a third of my life? I understand people aren't doing that anymore, but maybe a third of my time doing something that makes me miserable or that I don't understand why I'm doing it? Or can I be a reference point to? Which means I need to resolve all the issues I might ever have had about going to work or having to work or, or running my company. You know, that, it, you know, I, most of my life I work for myself. And for a brief period of time, I was project managers for two different companies. And that was like a vacation to me. I'd be like, Cody, you might, you might understand that. Anybody that runs, runs their own business would probably understand that. You know, it's, it's much less stressful to let somebody drop a project on your desk every now and then than to think that you always have to be creating projects to be dumped on your, de on your desk. Yes, Zach? And I say we're not just because if somebody drops a project on your desk and you decide that you're going to you're you are going to go home right you're not going to do that project right then and there yep. that all of a sudden you don't create the conflict in your mind of i am so and so person right i am not i'm the person who you know decides not to do things this is a reflection of me as a, a bad employee right because that's that's the pressure that a lot of employers will put on employees. Oh, which that, is that, a good employee would do that. Well, well, that that's that's explained by I'm, I'm, excuse me for interrupting you, but that pressure that bosses put on employees is explained away as the first noble truth, isn't it? There is dukkha. Why should I be special that I have bosses that put pressure on me to get things done? Does it have anything to do with me? If I take it personal, it does. Or I can simply understand that that boss has people above him, or if it's his business, he has a bottom line to watch. So, of course. And so I'm always that reference point. I can take it personally, or I can recognize that I 
showed up here this morning, so I agreed to work for a certain amount of money and a certain number of hours. Okay. And if I don't agree to that anymore internally, or I find it hurtful in any way, or I just don't like it, I can leave. I just think there's there's a sense of responsibility that um, can become pervasive when we decide that we are not going to go above and beyond the requirements of the job. Yeah, and, that, and then we and then a lot of that gets taken personally. By who? Person experiencing it. Oh yeah. So again, if, but. Uh, if you have developed the Dom, remember, we're not talking about ever just the world. We're not trying to solve what goes on and resolve what goes on in the world. We're talking about Dom practitioners and how they would experience that. Right. And if you don't take what's occurring personally, there's no disturbance in your mind. You might consider right. that, okay, I don't, I don't like that this boss, um, the health field is, is, um, characterized by this, uh, they put way too much pressure on their nurses and technicians and uh, therapists to get a certain amount of work done. And that certain amount of work is almost impossible for any human being to do. But because and I, I had a lot of talks with a woman that I lived with, she comes here, you know, more, she's an OT. And almost every day she'd come home just shaken and in tears just because of how stressful her day was. And we'd always have a talk, and that, you know, I talk about it. Uh, and it would always get to that point where I'd say, you know, Maura, just because somebody gives you 10 patients to see every day, and you can only realistically and health uh, safely, as far as your interaction with them, get to seven, means that all you can do is seven, no matter what people say. And so if you understand that yourself, you might communicate that to your boss that, listen, I can only get to seven. Again, as an example, but you do that as a reference point, resting in reality. It's not that you have aversion to seeing 10, it's just that it can't be done. And so if the job requires that I do something that I can't do, then as a reference point to that occurring to me, I can understand, okay, this isn't a job for me. And or, but that's the distinction that I'm that I'm trying to draw out here, which is when you can't see those last three patients, and or it's five o'clock, and something gets dropped on your desk, you are not a representation of not doing that work. That's just further eye making in the, in, in the negative space. I'm not, I'm not following you though. That list. You don't. You decide not to do. If you certain do, things. Right. If you can't get to those last three patients, that is not a reflection of you. Oh yeah, that's, that, that's, that's what I was telling more almost every right. night. It has nothing to do with you. Right, and that's the distinction I'm trying to make because I think that's important in this day and age. Because most most jobs that I've experienced uh, directly and or indirectly, friends, family, so on, the they require so much more than the average person can can do healthfully. Yeah, and, but, and but when, that's just that's you, the first noble truth. Right. There is Duca. The, 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 and a world that is governed by greed and aversion is certainly going to develop economic systems that are rooted in. And I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not anti anything. But because it, we live in a world that is root, rooted in greed and aversion, 
we're going to create systems, including economic systems, um, societal way, ways that, that businesses should work, although that's you know, it's a big up to people today. Um, but that's all to be expected, isn't it? Yeah. That bosses might be greedy, head of corporations might be greedy, you know, everybody, I might be greedy and I have a version to this and that, or I can resolve my greed and aversion, and then I'm just a reference point to what's occurring. But a, a meaningfully engaged as a reference point to what's occurring, if there's something for me to do, right? If, if, if there's not something for me to do, then I can just sit with a calm and peaceful mind and be at peace doing nothing instead of feeling like I'm bored because I should be doing something. Yeah. But again, all I mean, you know, I, they, I, I'm somewhat fortunate where I am that I, I can do this and eke out a living. Um, and it's great on so many levels. Like obviously I can't do physical work. I could probably be a, you know, um, uh, just, I said a project manager because I need to take a lot of physical stuff. But my point is that, you know, we, we have to do things in this world in order to survive financially. We just have to. I'm fortunate enough to be doing this, but if not, I would, you know, if I didn't, I would have to take a job somewhere doing something, you know, just because I might be averse to bosses or working yeah. in this moment, doesn't mean that I shouldn't do it or can't do it. In fact, the dollar would help me understand that, wait a minute, this is just a version to something that's entirely practical, getting a job and making a paycheck or, you know, starting up a business or whatever else it might be. But again, now we're focused maybe a little too much on the business world, but this happens you know, these fabrications arise and pass away in every relationship that we have. Yeah, and, and I'll just close with saying, yes, it, it is Dukkha, you're not special because there is a requirement that, or a request that you do something. But you do have agency in that moment, right? To choose to do it or choose not to do it. Yeah. And, and either either way, it's not a reflection of you, right? It's not a reflection of who you who you are. Yeah, unless, you, just unless becomes, you make it so, but then it becomes further I make it. Yeah. I'll leave it, I'll, I'll leave it. Well that's a good place to leave it because if there there is no there's no dukkha when you're acting as a reference point, even though again, even though dukkha will always be arising and passing away in the world. And there'll always be certain people that do certain things that we wish were different. Um, but we are sovereign. And we also have control of our minds, which means we have control of our lives. And we, we make, we'll make much more better, we'll make much more better. We'll make better decisions about ourselves and, and our activities in the world if we can get rid of all that eye making, all that uh, distraction from what's right in front of me and make better decisions that way. Does anybody recognize that a, a, a better decision-making process? Adam, are you shaking your head? No, I'm not in agreement. Do you want to talk about it a little bit? You don't have to. <clears throat> sure. Well, what I find when I'm in decisions like that is the repeat to myself, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not who I am. And that kind of gives me a bit of release to make a uh, non-judgmental decision in the moment. I said as a, as a business owner too. Yeah, 
Well, anybody else about want to talk about that, or we'll just go around the room? Hi, Mary. I just wanted to say that it doesn't mean there won't be consequences that are contrary to what you want the outcome to be. I mean, that's just the nature of life, right? So walking away from that project is something, you know, and not to get too in the weeds on a specific situation, because the same applies to whatever the situation is in terms of suffering or stress that we might be adding to the situation. A project lands on your desk, you make a decision, you know it's not, you know, a reflection of you, but it doesn't mean there won't be consequences that you have to deal with the next day. And it still won't be you, but it's how you deal with it and how you leverage the practice off the cushion with whatever those consequences are. Yeah. And, and, and so consequences, using that example, the consequence to throwing that or just not doing the project and walking away might be that I'm going to lose the job. And the other consequence to consider is if I do it, then I'll still have a job, you know, but, uh, but whatever happens, I won't take any of it personally. You go into that moment able to be skillful. You go into that moment yeah. using right speech and right action. Because you, I'm starting to because you develop your skills within the framework of the Dharma. So like what Adam was saying, go into there with the clarity of that, the byproduct practice you can be skillful and you can be you can negotiate you can say this isn't going to work and of course what mary said was that may still get you a consequence yeah but you can do that and exit that moment peaceful and you did no harm yeah and that's entirely up to you as a dollar practitioner yeah. but it doesn't excuse you from dukkha yeah, if you if you if you're going to continue to live, take a breath. The first noble truth prevails. There will be dukkha. So that whole, there always is. Yeah. So that whole span of time is a much more gentle experience. That's right. That's and when right. it's done, it's done. Yeah, because you're not again the second hour. You're not causing more stress for yourself over something that is entirely impersonal. Even if you're even again, I don't want to go too much further with this, but even if your boss throws that project on your desk to be a pain because he doesn't like you or something or you think or maybe he really doesn't like you. So what? But really that has it? nothing to do with you, does it? If, if you really last week we talked about kind of an origination and you're talking about putting these fabrications down. But this is the practical application of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what we're talking about is off the cushion, how does this look? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And notice what the thank you for what David's saying. It points to what the Buddha's teaching here is an entirely internal job, isn't it? We're not trying to change anything in our in our world because there's no it's insane to think that you should do that. But to, to learn to deepen jhana, deepen your concentration, so you can stop doing it to yourself, to stop taking things personal. And again, the, the description of awakening, meaning a mature human being, fits that, doesn't it? And it, it fits because that's what the Buddha wanted it to fit. You know, this, this incredible man who figured out 
the most important thing that any human being could figure out how to be a human being, right? I mean, he didn't figure out how we can get a rocket to Mars or, you know, he didn't figure out a cure for cancer or anything else, which would be great for people to figure those things out. But I wanted to find out what it meant to be a human being and why I was so angry for not knowing it, even though I didn't know that I didn't know. You know? And so I found something that that I, I realized that a human being was teaching other human beings to let go of anything that's causing their imagination to run wild, even like I should go to nothingness or emptiness or whatever else it might be, and just stay in this present moment and understand what it means to be you and understand the nature of suffering to be a reference point to what's occurring. So let's go around the room. Does anybody not want to be on camera? Hey, here's Julia. Thank you for the teaching, John, and thanks everyone for the discussion so far. I Noble silence, I don't have anything to add. Thank you. Hello, Adam. Same for me, John. Thank you very much, but noble silence for me. Thank you for being here. Hello, Zach. Hi, John. Thanks for the teaching, and uh, I think I took enough time with the questions already. You so. didn't, but you know, we got time. No, no silence. Thank you. All right. Glad you're here, Cody. Oh, hi. Um, um, thank you for the teaching today for the, for the class. Um, I feel like usually I'm the one that's that's uh, quiet and everybody else seems to have something to say, but this conversation today is, um, I think um, what you refer to a lot is um, being a mature, a mature human being. Yeah. And, um, Fully. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, what if, if we think of what what is an immature human being and one who internalizes everything and everything is personal and everything deserves a reaction and everything is emotional. Um, not to say that there aren't emotions or that emotions don't matter, but um, right. a lot of talk about business today and um i think my my chief role in, in my business is to develop systems right and to have a process mm -hmm. and what those systems and processes do for me is they allow me to be a mature business owner because i don't i'm not i'm not responding out of an emotional reaction yeah. my identity isn't my business um the system and, is honored or respected right rather than rather than worship emotions yeah, right. or worship. Yeah. So if a client has a problem, they're not attacking me. They're expressing a need that my business can fulfill. Yeah. Um, and in the same way as, you know, if my son has a problem or I did something that hurt his feelings or that he didn't like, um, he's not attacking me. It's not personal. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's an appropriate, um, way to exist yeah, and, and way to, um, deal with all that. Yeah. Um, 
I, you know, I, I, the, the, the one thing that occurred to me as we were talking today um, is uh, talking about the imagination and um, this infinite consciousness. And, um, I have to admit, like, I'm a little bit attached to the idea of an infinite consciousness, yeah. and the, the bounds of my identity and personality slipping away and feeling connected to all human beings. It's really lovely. Um, but I think one of the, you know, something that we often say is like a positive aspect of children is what a wonderful imagination they have, you know, how, how carried away children can become with their imagination. And And they should uh, be. Yeah. And it is, it's, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Uh, but it's not necessarily a mature thing. Uh, It's good for kids. It's not great for adults. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So full human maturity would means that you would bring that to cessation naturally. Right. So we're not not quite so concerned with ourselves and our own imaginations because it is all self. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Again, so you just described again the whole Dharma. Thank you. We we become our own container for living in the world. I'm not talking about something that isolates us, but we understand this is where this is where I live. You know, but the container is my mind united in my body. And that's where everything that occurs or will occur throughout time is happening to me. And there's nothing personal about it. And I don't need to do anything about it. You know, the you might have heard me say this here in class, the most loving thing we can do for ourselves is take to the Dhamma and awaken so as to end conflict in our minds and not introduce more conflict in the world. So most most every human being, except uh, psychopaths, and the psychopathy is very rare, um, care about each other. We're naturally compassionate, compassionate. But when our passions overwhelm, when our passions overwhelm, um, we make excuses for our own compassion and empathy, don't we? That person doesn't deserve it. That person's got the wrong, whatever it might be, right? We all have, and we go to we go to wars over first denigrating the other people. You know, it's interesting how eh, they have their politics. Um, also, by what you're saying, tells me and all of us that you're developing a dharma as intended, because you're seeing where we're going. Your understanding the the very gentle nature of this dhamma, I think, uh, but also understanding that it is a an eightfold path that is the framework for all of our all of our practice that leads to ending ignorance of four noble truths. In other words, you might be into, you might be someone who goes to a yoga class. One of our teachers is a yoga teacher. And, um, it often comes up like, isn't there a conflict like doing this or doing that? And it's only if there is conflict in your mind. And Jen, and actually, there's an article right on the homepage down at the bottom where Jen talks about that. She taught a, a, a Zoom class um, about how she keeps those two practices separate. She does a wonderful job. Matt is a, uh, a, a really outstanding. Uh, Chinese medicine practitioner, and he teaches Qigong, and he understands all that, the philosophy. 
and some of the philosophies I, I, I usually recommend there I often recommend if people want a body-based practice to try qigong instead of yoga only because the underlying philosophy is somewhat similar to what the buddha taught but not entirely but to make that point that matt is able to keep that separate so we're not saying that you shouldn't do anything else except practice the eightfold path but as far as our um practice of what we're doing to learn about ourselves and maybe end stress or end our contributions to stress um, it's by keeping this practice pure that's important all right thank you cody do you have any other questions go ahead here. um let me go online uh tracy hi everyone thank you john for the teaching and i wanted to just also thank julia um i think she had took a, she took a moment earlier in the class to kind of make all these connections and it was very helpful for me because i i realized today that um like i came to this practice absolutely looking for like some sort of peace and salvation and even though I logically under, I'm starting to understand logically the Four Noble Truths and um, Dependent Origination. Um, in my meditation in Jhana, I'm still wondering when the pain's going to go away. Like through the whole practice, I feel myself sighing, like enough, you know? <laughs> and the pain for me is a real strong feeling of anxiety that I've lived with for a long time. Mm -hmm. And today was really the first day, thanks to this teaching and Julia's connection points, that I realized that I've been ignoring the first noble truth, which is that there is dukkha. Yes. And I felt this feeling of like almost refreshment that like, oh, all this seeking isn't helping me. Because what I'm seeking is, as you say, John, like a salvation of some kind from this feeling. And no, it just is what it is. Yep, it's pure feeling. And I'm not, the more I seek to make that feeling go away in subtle ways, shifting on my cushion or taking a sigh or whatever it is, whatever little subtle movements or thoughts or waiting for the moment where I get to another jhana level, whatever it is, um, it's only creating more stress. Yep. And uh, today was really the first day that I was able to make those connections thanks to the conversation and the teaching. So I just wanted to thank you guys for that. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy, for that. And again, it points to the importance of um, coming to as many classes as you can as well, because you heard something today that you, you likely might not have heard. Um, you said something interesting, too. You said that we ignore the first noble truth. Well, that's, that is, that's right where it is. We ignore, ignore, ignorance arises because we're rooted in very specific ignorance, isn't it? it, it ignorance gives birth to ignorance. And that's what the, the Buddha talks about. It's the only thing the Buddha cares about as far as giving birth. And so we, as our concentration increases, we are very mindful of what we're giving birth to in this moment. 
and hopefully it's another moment that's framed by the eightfold path rather than reaction, rather than greed and aversion. So, thank you, Tracy. Thank you. Mr. Kemp, good to see you. Good to see all of you, too. No, I'm sorry, Jeff. Adam, it's 10 o'clock. I don't know if you need to go. I hope not. But... Sorry, Jeff. Yeah. Jeff. It's 10 o'clock. What do you have to say for yourself? What I got to say is that what I hear from everybody is almost a universal experience uh, that everybody is describing the same thing from their own point of view. And that's yeah. that, that it's that experience of dukkha and it becomes stress when you try to imagine that you are somehow controlling impermanence and constant change that you take that on as your identity, that somehow you're going to grasp this swirling, almost ephemeral reality we live in and make everything pleasant all the time. Yeah. Right? And, and we insist that life be like that or we're really pissed off. <laughs> really what would happen is that you would not be experiencing consciousness because you have to have two sides of an experience you can't have a good experience without realizing what a bad experience is you can't experience yeah. day without having a night so yeah. to wish that everything was pleasant would be to wish that you don't experience um life exactly and again the buddha described that way of living as like a living death you know, correct you know, yeah, you really aren't experiencing anything. Yeah. And until we learn to establish ourselves where we are, right here, you know, and again, back to that reference point to what's occurring. Life goes on. Thank you, Jeff. I think I got everybody but that bald guy. Uh, Mary, how did skip over Mary? Jeez. Good to see you, Mary. Hi. Hi. Good to see everyone. Um, when I read the sutta, um, and I tend to try to get to the sort of most basic element, is that it was talking about the four jhanas, which, you know, their relevance is in helping you, helping us to understand how our concentration improves the more we are sitting on our cushion in order to experience those um, different levels. And then that's all practice for how you deal with your life when the project comes at the end of the day on your desk or you get fired or, you know, whatever happens in your life because it's the suffering that we bring to ourselves that I, I feel like I can sense a little bit this morning, um, you know, among others. And so it really comes down to you often say, looking at yourself in the mirror um, for each one of us, because it's an individual practice. And are we prioritizing this practice to ensure that we're developing the rigor on our cushion in order to have the life we're looking for, the peace, um, the reduction in, um, you know, difficulties that are normal for all of us to have in our lives. Um, 
but it really comes back to prioritizing this practice, um, coming to class, um, you know, sitting every day, twice a day, and, you know, participating in this discussion. Um, it really is that simple, you know, as we seek, we have to first sort of hold ourselves accountable that are we doing the basic, maybe requirements is too heavy of a word, but are we doing the basic recommendations of the Buddha to help us get there? Are we managing and scheduling our life even through the difficulties to prioritize the practice to enable us to move forward on the path toward a more peaceful existence. I guess yeah. that's that's what I took as the, that's the importance of understanding the jhanas to me. So that's, yeah. that's my thoughts. Yeah, this, this sutta started with that simple question. The single point, what is the one most basic thing that we do as Dharma practitioners is we develop concentration. You know, that's the single thing. That's the, it's not the only thing, but it's the it's the the prerequisite for all the rest of right. the dominant. Because then the concentration helps you with the discernment in the moment that that project hits your desk. Yeah. So you're not asking about, and I mean I know this very firsthand about thinking that the business world is operating by a different set of rules than the rest of the world when it's just part of the world. I mean, yeah. it may have more, as you were suggesting, it might have more focus on uh, profitability and which can be considered greed and aversion. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing as anywhere. So when that bad thing happens, whatever that bad thing is, let's say in the business world, it's the same discernment if that bad thing happened to any other part of your life, you know, something with your family, a friendship, whatever it is, it's the discernment you bring due to the concentration that you developed on your cushion by sitting twice a day that you're able to summon in that moment to say, all right, this isn't personal, but you might move to a more skillful thought that says, okay, could I, would it be appropriate for me to respond to XYZ person and renegotiate the expectation that I've created in my head because somebody dumped it at the end of the day? Maybe that just needs clarification, right? But you don't have that cognizant clarity of thought and maturity and composure and inner poise if you're not doing the other components of the practice is what I think the Buddha is yeah. trying to tell us. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and you, you told us beautifully how to do that. It's just, it, you know, the, as, as stress arises and passes away, if we have concentration, we recognize it arising and passing away. We understand the, the utter simplicity of all human life. Things arise and pass away. Everything, including ourselves, including an idea, you can't point to anything. Even scientists, you know, they say at some point the universe that we live in will cease to exist. Well, if the universe that I live in will cease to exist, why should I worry about the same thing? You know? And and I don't. 
you know, I, I don't. I'm, I mean, I'm much closer to the end than the beginning, but why worry? I mean, I do things, I do what I need to do to keep myself going because I want to, you know, life is still interesting. I'm still curious about a lot of things. So I'd like to keep going, but why don't I don't? Rom, I bet you can't wait for that argument. Let me go to Larry's. <clears throat> yeah, here's the, the Sutta, the ending fabrications one by one. And the Buddha shows how this happens in Jhana. And <clears throat> the Sangha picks it up and shows how this happens in, in life. Off the question. And uh, it's, uh, yes, this is Dharma practice. Yeah. And it's utterly practical. Yeah. This makes sense. Thanks, Ron. Hello, David. I'm all set. Oh, thank you. All right. Anybody have any other questions? So we still, you know, we have 20 some odd classes to go in this genre review, but just the, 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 Deeper levels of jhana um, are not to be grasped after. They're not something that we should see as achievements, but we should recognize when we develop these four levels of jhana, what they feel like, you know, how many, what's the experience of, of your mind when it's resting in pure equanimity. And in the, in the next and then a thought comes in, you know, and be, wow, this is really cool. But that's a distraction, isn't it? So we take a breath. And every time we engage in jhana meditation, just like that, we're deepening that foundation of, of concentration that we can bring off our cushion and out into the world. So, and every time we do that and take a breath, you know, we find out that we're, we find that we're distracted by a feeling or a thought or a thought attached to a feeling an emotion, and we take a breath, we unite our mind and our body, we are interrupting what will happen outside of our cushion. We're interrupting the reaction, and we're laying the foundation so that we can use the Eightfold Path now as our reference point to what's occurring, and so train ourselves to be a reference point to what's occurring. You know, we, 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 we use the, the framework and guidance of right speech, I mean, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. We have those, those ready for this moment. And because I'm well concentrated, I can call up the Dhamma and relate it to this moment. Right? And it doesn't mean that, okay, wait a minute, take a pause, let me go open up a book. It just means over time we would continue practice, just like we're doing here, right? I don't know if any of you noticed, but what we do here, we meditate, we do a little something else, and then we talk about it. But we're doing just that, aren't we? We're, we're engaging in this practice of interrupting ignorance gradually by simply being here. And then our discussions just enhance that understanding. It really is remarkable uh, what you've all shared. So again, any other questions before we finish with Meta? Okay. Okay.
just a reminder, we're going out for breakfast. And I hope you can join us, Jeff. Okay, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your in-breath and your out-breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. And this is a sutta that the Buddha restored by me. It's slightly altered from its original. Um, that describes the qualities of an awakened human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, those seen and unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, a wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, and being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for another wonderful class. Thank you. Peace, everyone. See you all soon. Thank you, John. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a good breakfast. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.